You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Dealing with incompetence. I'll have to get into this later. But sometimes you you ever go to a restaurant or a store and then you realize why someone is in the service industry? And I say this as someone that spent probably 15 years of my life working full-time or part-time in the service industry. But then you realize, okay, you want to do something else. Sometimes you don't. But some people, you wonder how they even get hired there. (sighs) I just got to breathe. Finally got the the burger that I ordered. Only took 10 minutes. We'll get into that later on. But I want to talk about another type of incompetence. And that is the incompetence that apparently goes with being a political leader or an appointed leader. In our society. Last night, we broke the news to you of the stabbing at the Canadian Forces Recruiting Center in Toronto. And I I said kudos to Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders. And he do, does deserve some kudos again today. But he also needs to get a... Come on, man. Really? So, so I said last night, good for Saunders. Too many... Political police chiefs, and let's face it, every police chief is a politician, an unelected politician, but a politician. Too many of them will not say the obvious, such as man walks into Armed Forces Recruiting Center, starts stabbing people randomly, uh, screaming about Allah. Yeah, we think it might be terrorism. Too many of them would be unwilling to say, yep, yep, we're thinking about terrorism. But last night, Saunders did. And the reporters at The Sun, and The the Sun, especially in Toronto, still has the best crime reporters going. They used their sources, and they found out, and they had the story last night before anyone else, the Toronto Sun was reporting that the guy was yelling about Allah while he was stabbing people. Well, kudos to Toronto's chief of police, Mark Saunders, who admitted as much and was very blunt about it in his news conference this morning. While at the scene, the accused stated that Allah told me to do this. Allah told me to come here and kill people. The accused was taken to the hospital because at the time his behavior appeared to be that, if non-responsive. Hmm. Non-responsive. So Saunders was asked about that non-responsive bit, and and it turns out he, he was quite awake. He hadn't been subdued that badly. He wasn't injured, and he wasn't taken to a hospital for injuries. He was taken to a mental hospital because... Once they had him, he just kind of shut up, wouldn't answer any questions. So they said, here, check this guy out for us. Well, he was asked about the non-responsive nature. And the person asking the question, and I think this is Ross McLean, former police officer turned media pundit, who asked about, could this be drug-related? I want you to listen to the question, and then the bizarre answer that Saunders gave that he didn't have to give. One of the issues is uh, a lot of these terrorists, more so overseas than here, they use drugs, they take drugs before they go and do these attacks. Uh, could it be blood testing on this guy to see if there was any drugs in his system and maybe that's why he was non-responsive or behaving the way he was? 
Well, I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, um, I, 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 one of the things that I, I want to be very, very careful of um, when it comes to the national security piece, that we don't go through that uh, Isla Islamophobia nonsense. Um, people are the very small numbers, very small minutiae of numbers of people. So I don't want this categorizing of a large group of people. That would be very unfair and very inaccurate. He asked if the guy was on drugs. He said, are you going to test him? He said that he had heard that some guys carrying out terrorist attacks overseas will dope themselves up as they go into an attack. Is that accurate? I don't know. He could have said, uh, I've never heard of that. We don't know about that. Yes, there will be drug testing done on them, toxicology reports, all of that, blah, blah, blah. What on earth did that have to do with Islamophobia? First point. Second point, why did he go off on Islamophobia at all? Anye Ayanli, I think I'm saying this right now, Ayanli Hassan Ali, 27-year-old man, born in Montreal, raised in Montreal, moved to Toronto about five years ago. Guy's quite Canadian. He's now facing three charges of attempted murder, two charges of aggravated assault, three charges of assault with a weapon, one count of carrying a weapon dangerous to the public. What's this have to do with Islamophobia? And why do we need that lecture after every jihadi goes off on a killing spree or attempted killing spree or is caught in a plot? Why do, why do the rest of us need a lecture when it's the jihadis? It's not us. It's not the rest of us. And I'm not saying us and them as in Muslims and non-Muslims. Oh, those Muslims over there. No. I've had callers into the show saying, we don't want these guys treated with some special status. They're murderous thugs. Treat them as such. So why go off on that? There is this automatic assumption that you've got to lecture the Canadian public. And we always have to be on watch for Islamophobia. Last week, heard it on this radio station, there was a bulletin across all the broadcast networks. Every radio and TV station got this bulletin. It looked like a hate crime in Calgary because there was a shooting at a Muslim cemetery. Was it a hate crime? No. It was gangs settling scores at a funeral. Like lots of other gangs have done before. Had nothing to do with Islam. But that's okay. We can get the Islamophobia lecture. But then we get the other lecture, the lecture that means nothing. It's a politician saying words. And I guess I can cut Ralph Goodale, the public safety minister, some slack. He's got to say something. But what do you say other than, all right, we got the thug. Let's deal with them. But Goodale, here's what he's saying. This type of behavior is not consistent with the values that Canadians hold dear. Uh, and uh, uh, when, when, uh, uh, when terrorist behavior, violent behavior occurs, uh, it, uh, it must be dealt with appropriately. All right. I like mothers. I like apple pie. He, he could have said that. I mean, he's not saying much. I get it. He can't say too much. What is he going to say? Who is in favor of these types of, uh, these types of, of attacks? Well, pretty much just shihadis. Finally, we've got his lawyer speaking to reporters outside of the courthouse. And you know what? I guess it's been a, a rough day 
and a rough night for Mr. Ali. That's what that's what he's telling us anyway. I, I think at the end of the day, it remains to be seen exactly what kind of a person we're dealing with still yet. So um, that that's something that's going to have to come out as things go along. What kind of person is he? He's a jihadi. He's someone that wanted to kill soldiers because Allah told him to do it. That's what kind of a person he is. And yet we've got this lawyer who's all worried about the condition of his client. Really? Guy's name's David Burke. He's Mr. Ali's lawyer. And he said he's actually worried about his client's condition. I spoke with him. Um, He seems all right. Uh, Obviously very, very upset. Um, And you can imagine he's probably pretty scared right now. And he should be. He stabbed two Canadian soldiers at a Canadian soldier, a Canadian Armed Forces recruiting center. Now he's in jail. Darn right he should be scared. He should have thought of that ahead of time. These are the bizarre statements that we get the day after a terrorist attack. Could be, you know, even if this had nothing to do with terrorism, even if it was a simple crime, as too many people want to try and slough off terrorism as. It's still something that we don't need the lectures on. We don't need the Canadian public to be patted on the head and told, there, there, don't be a little racist, you. When I start seeing incidents of racism pile up, I'll get on the bandwagon with Police Chief Saunders. Until then, to heck with the jihadis. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. I love my French fries, maybe a little too much. They will be the death of me, or perhaps at least the death of my girlish figure, my svelte body. We've got a big story going on down in the United States, and we're going to talk about it in depth later on. It is Super Tuesday 3, and Florida is the big prize. There's five states voting right now. Florida is the big prize. Now, before I give you any results, I, I, I just want to play a clip of Marco Rubio this morning. He's the junior senator from Florida. No one knows who the senior senator from Florida is. That's how they always identify them, the junior and the senior senator. <clears throat> no one really knows who the senior senator is because nobody talks about him. Well, Rubio has to win Florida or he's toast. And if you ask me, he's toast already. He just he doesn't have a path to winning the Republican primary. And the polls are showing that Donald Trump is way out ahead. Way ahead. But Rubio was still out there this morning speaking with, was it Good Morning America? Yeah. No, he, it was uh, WDBO in Orlando uh, that, um, well, you know what? The polls, the polls don't really tell you what's going on. Rubio's convinced the polls are all wrong when they have him behind Donald Trump by a two-to-one margin. All these polls are out of control. They're crazy. They're way out of whack. I'm just telling you. Uh, I can't guarantee a win today. I'm telling you, we expect to win tonight, but we are not 20 points behind him. That's absurd. Yeah, absurd. Well, let's see how it's going right now. In Florida, CNN says Donald Trump has 44%, 44.8% of the votes. 
That's with 29% of the, uh, the, the, the votes counted. And Rubio's down at about 27, 28. Sorry, they keep moving the screen on me. So not quite two to one, but not far off, Marco. My guy's not doing that great either. So take that for what you will. The people of Florida are getting behind Donald Trump. Now, they're also, on the Democrat side, getting behind the crazy old socialist. No, I don't mean Bernie Sanders. I mean the other crazy old socialist. All the attention's on the Republican side. Remember, they have two crazy people running to be the Democratic nominee, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Maybe Hillary's not crazy, but she is someone that should not be trusted to run a country when she can't tell the truth about things like, oh, what's that thing again that I keep going on about? Oh, yeah, Benghazi, where she lied to the American people about the fact that an American ambassador and four people serving with diplomatic outposts there were killed, and she blamed it on a YouTube video. Told her daughter that night in an email that it was it was a terrorist attack and even named the group. But, hey, don't worry. Don't worry. We can let, we can let Hillary run the country. She's good. Now, speaking of terrorism, this is, we opened the show talking about the terror attack in, um, in Toronto, the stabbing at the Canadian Armed Forces Recruiting Center. And I want to link it to something on the other side of the world where many of our, many members of our armed forces used to go, Afghanistan. Because we need to remember that what happened in Toronto is not isolated from what's happening in the Middle East. It's not isolated from what happened in Paris. It's not isolated from what happened here in Ottawa with the shooting on Parliament Hill or in St. Jean. And it's not isolated from what happened in Afghanistan now because they're fighting Islamic State. That's right. ISIS is in Afghanistan along with the Taliban. Now, Afghanistan's president says they've got the Islamic State militants as the Associated Press Wire Service likes to call them, the militants, on the run. Because there was, they say there was a massive military operation in a remote district to the country's border with Pakistan. And NATO Secretary General Jens Stolenberg was there at a joint news conference with Afghanistan's President uh, Ashraf Ghani earlier today. And Stolenberg said that they're actually pledging further support because... We pulled our troops out, but NATO is still in Afghanistan fighting. Did you know this? We will do that uh, through training, uh, advice and assistance. Uh, we have ended our uh, combat uh, mission. Hmm. Ended the combat mission, but we're still there. We went into Afghanistan Thanksgiving weekend, and by we, I mean Western countries, Canada showed up a little bit later, although some of our guys were on the pointy end of the spear with the Americans. We went into Afghanistan Thanksgiving Day weekend, 2001. We're still there. The fight is still going on. And these are not isolated fights. The fight against ISIS in Afghanistan is connected to the fight in Syria and Iraq. It's connected to the fight in Algeria in Mali, in Toronto, in Ottawa. We'll be speaking with Phil Gursky in a few moments. He is a former CSIS operative, a man who 
now runs a security and consulting firm. We'll get into that in a moment. We're going to talk about the attack in Toronto. But let's remember that this is not an isolated incident. And there will be those that say, well, they're attacking us because we attack them. I guarantee you, we pick up our ball and go home tomorrow. That's not going to stop them coming. That's not going to stop the barbarity. That's not going to stop them trying to raise that black flag above our parliament. They have a mission. And like Mr. Ali in Toronto, they believe that Allah gave them the mission. And they will not rest until they see it through or die trying. That's the reality of the situation. We're not going to go in and negotiate with them. We're not going to go in and talk our way through things. This is going to be an ongoing fight for a long time, whether we want it or not, whether we are participating and taking the fight to them or not. This is going to be a fight that keeps coming. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. With the terror attack in Toronto, I wanted to reach out and and speak to someone that has a bit more insight, a bit more in-depth knowledge of dealing with people that are radicalized. And earlier today, I had the chance to speak with Phil Gursky. He's the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, worked in the intelligence field here in Canada for more than 30 years, 15, 15 of them with CSIS. And just recently, last fall, he published the, the book, The Threat from Within, Recognizing Al-Qaeda-Inspired Radicalization and Terrorism in the West. I'm checking it out on Amazon. I might, might be picking that up later on. Uh, this is my chat with Phil Gursky. Mr. Gursky, you have said on your website today that you fear that this is the beginning of a pattern or maybe the continuance of a pattern. Uh, What are you talking about there in terms of military personnel being targeted by these terrorist attacks? Well, certainly we've seen a number of attacks in the past couple of years. Just to to cite a few examples, you know, aside from the attacks on military personnel in Ottawa and Saint-Jean in October 2014, we've seen attacks in Arkansas, we've seen attacks in Texas. We've seen attacks in Woolwich, and I hate to remind people, but most of the attacks in Canada that were foiled by CSIS and the RCMP involved potential attacks on military sites as well. So in that, you're talking about the Toronto 18, you're talking about the Via Rail plot with um, Eseb uh, Chesiger. He actually, um, he and his um, co-conspirator talked about poisoning people on a military base, didn't they? They did. And, you know, people sort of see this as a sort of pie-in-the-sky kind of thing. You know, it probably is unrealistic, but I think what's important for me is it illustrates that they're paying attention to military bases as potential targets, which means they're thinking about it. The uh, minister, uh, former minister of Veterans Affairs, now the conservative public safety critic, was on the station earlier today, and he said, look, we've got to get on the issue of de- uh, of radicalization and de-radicalization He's been pushing for a study and says it's not being looked at at Parliament property. Are there actual programs that can that can be done to 
reach out to people that are being radicalized? Do these work? Is there any evidence to that in your experience? Well, I hate to contradict the former minister, but I mean, we've been studying the thesis for years about radicalization. We understand it really well. The problem is, is how do you take steps that are effective early, early in the process that are going to actually work? And the one thing that nobody does well is effectiveness measurement. So I can talk to you or, you know, uh, mentor you or guide you as much as I want. Uh, how do I determine that you've actually received the message and are longer, no longer a violent radical? No one does that really well. So I would commend the new government in terms of talking about doing more and more intervention programs. I just saw that some university in Quebec got 400000 to do de-radicalization. It's hard, and I think people should recognize it's going to take some time. But I think, I think the people have their, their hearts in the right place. Let's make sure the mind's in the right place as well. Well, that, I mean, that was my question, was uh, politicians love to talk about it, but I, I'm not sure that it's actually going to be effective. So how do you? Is it well, just no, disruption, no, no, uh, which was a controversial power um, given to, right. to, to law enforcement recently? Is it just disruption to, to stop events like this from happening? Well, you know what? It's all of the above. So you have to um, include disruption where there's cases where people are not going to be reached by intervention. This is this is not the pre-criminal space. These are people that are going to do things. Either they're going to travel or they're going to plan things. Those have to be disrupted and stopped. That's your hard end. I've always argued, and this is going to sound silly, but as a country, we've got to start with the four-year-olds. If we can get the four-year-olds to be tolerant and inclusive and not have these kinds of biases and prejudices, then down the road we'll be fine. But what are you doing in the intervening 14 years? I'm not really sure. Have you ever dealt with 15-year-old boys? Absolutely. I mean, they, you, I, you can watch I'm a, a kid. I'm just speaking to someone who has a 14, 15-year-old son right now. Uh, not that he's become radicalized, but they go from – uh, one set of views that, that you help give them to others, and they're trying things on. I, I think in the teenage years, that's part of it. This man was obviously 27. Many mm-hmm. of the people are, are well past that stage, uh, you know, and some of them have grown up here. This gentleman here, uh, Mr. Ali, he grew up in Montreal. He grew up in a very welcoming society, moved to Toronto, and is at a, a young street recruiting station stabbing people. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think what it, you know what this points to, and, and people talk a lot about the whole lone wolf phenomenon. Look, at this guy grew up in an environment. I have no idea where he grew up in Montreal. I'm not familiar with the facts, but he was obviously exposed to this ideology somewhere and by somebody, and he shared it with somebody. He talked about it with somebody. And I think the key going forward is to determine who those somebodies are in Montreal. Can we determine what the environment is? That's the kinds of things we have to we have to get at. Is trying, you know, I don't call it draining the swamp, but it's more or less that we have to identify people who who espouse these ideologies and, and distribute them and act as mentors, and we have to we have to act against them as well because they're the radicalizers, right? They're the guys spreading this stuff. So they um we we've got uh, we've got Mr. Ali in custody right now. Uh, I'm, did you hear the um, the news conference with Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders earlier today? Yes, I did. He was very careful. He went over the charges, the attempted murder, two cases of aggravated assault and so on. But he was very careful to say, as a municipal force, he's not really touching the side of this that deals with national security. That's the RCMP. Just from an operational point of view, let me ask you, is it that divided between local police, RCMP and CSIS? Um, yes and no. He's absolutely right is that the RCMP has the mandate as a, as a national, the federal national security police. That's what they do. CSIS has a mandate as, as the, your national security intelligence service. But there's a lot of sharing of information on different levels. I mean, I think my experience has been that the, the forces work really well together. 
and that they, they sort of they observe their lanes in the road, but they do they share and they talk and they compare notes all the time. So, but he is right in deferring to the RCMP. They they are the the, the force of record in this particular offense. But I just asked because I know after nine eleven that was the talk of breaking down silos. That mm-hmm. uh, the fact that there were silos allowed for security lapses, and I yeah. this is a relatively minor incident. Um, yes. Thankfully, it could have been much worse. But I'd hate to you know find out later that. People just weren't talking to each other, and if they were, things could have turned out differently. But you're saying that while they they do work together in a cooperative way. Look, in my experience in Canada, it's been quite the opposite in terms of, you know, there are always going to be personalities and organizations that, you know, they want to kind of act on their own. But my experience in Canada has been that certainly CSIS and the RCMP work extremely well together, okay? They're different mandates, and, and they, you know, one's intelligence, one's evidence. But I've also seen a lot of cooperation and collaboration with local law enforcement. And I think the system works really well. So, you know, never say never. Um, you know, we could have a, a much, as you said, this attack was rather minor in scale. We could have a larger one. And I, I, I hope we don't. And, you know, but I, I do think that the, the security intelligence and law enforcement agencies that we have are actually doing a pretty good job at, at detecting these guys and stopping them. We stop most of them, right? Now, this, we, we, can't, we can't achieve perfection, but we stop most of them. And this is true. Uh, last question. You, you've said that this is going to be part of a pattern, so we can expect more of this, I'm guessing, in terms of military attacks. What's the reasoning for these guys targeting Canadian soldiers? The narrative that they abide by says that Islam is under attack and it's the West doing the attacking and that they're simply defending themselves from what they perceive as aggression. So given that we've increased our mandate in Iraq, um, we we're talking now about well, going back into Libya because Libya is <coughs> excuse me, proving to be a hellhole right now. The more interventions and deployments that we do will give them fodder for attacking us. And I'm not doing, saying that to criticize the decisions to go in, but it will serve as a propaganda coup for them saying, okay, we have soldiers now. They're in our country. That makes them fair game in their own country. All right. Mr. Gursky, thanks so much. Thank you. As my conversation with Phil Gursky, he's the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk, uh, Threat and Risk Consulting here in Ottawa, a, a veteran of the intelligence community in Ottawa, and 15 years spent with CSIS, specifically dealing with uh, radicalization and homegrown Al-Qaeda-inspired terrorism and extremism. I I think we'll be speaking with him again in the future. Now, you heard me reference uh, an interview with Aaron O'Toole. That was earlier today on CFRA. We'll do that on our playback section coming up in a moment. Also on the program tonight, we will be speaking with Anthony Fury about Justin Trudeau and his trip to the United Nations. Anthony Fury, of course, Ottawa Sun, Toronto Sun columnist and all-around good guy. So he'll be on and we'll be bringing you the latest on the issue of the Florida primaries and the other four primaries that are going on south of the border. You have thoughts on what you've heard so far? Drop me a line. It's beyond the news at CFRA.com. Beyond the news at CFRA.com. I'm Brian Lilly. Back in moments. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA.
It is the topic of the day in Canada, terrorism, how to deal with it, what we're facing. As I was saying earlier, it may seem like one small attack in Toronto, but this is well connected to everything Canada is doing overseas in Syria and Iraq, uh, what we did in Libya, what we may be doing in Libya again, and what's happening elsewhere. Earlier today, Evan Solomon on Ottawa Now had a chance to speak with Aaron O'Toole. He is the public safety critic for the Conservative Party and a Conservative MP from the Durham region. They chatted about the terror attack and how government should be responding. What do you make of of Ralph Goodale, the government's response to the stabbings that took place on Monday? Well, look, I, I'm a bit concerned. You know, at first they, they tried to just suggest this was a, a minor incident and and uh, there wasn't much response from the government when in actual fact, Evan, this is the third attack in less than 18 months against members of the Canadian Armed Forces. You know, we know uh, the horrible circumstances with Warrant Officer Patrice Vincent and Nathan Cirillo in Ottawa, um, you know, this is something where people were attacked more for the uniform uh, and the institution they belong to, the Canadian Armed Forces, than who they were individually. And that in itself uh, causes great concern because it's something we've been saying is a phenomenon of radicalization in Canada that, um, you know, we haven't dealt with until recent years. And this this government has already delayed us studying this concept at Public Safety Committee and seem to be not taking it seriously, and it's sad that it takes incidents like this to, to make people pay attention. Ralph Goodale, I'm speaking with Aaron O'Toole on this, the public safety critic. The public safety minister, Ralph Goodale, and we took his press conference live, said that Canada has the necessary tools to deal with this kind of situation, even though he is reviewing, as you and I both know, uh, C-51. Um, but do you think Canada does have the proper tools to deal with this already? Um, I, I don't think we do, Evan. Um, and we, we, uh, we've we been trying to get this on the radar uh, in Parliament early on in the session, and the Liberals on our committee have, have blocked studying the concept of radicalization and methods to, to uh, de-escalate or provide communities with outlets if they fear someone's being targeted for radicalization. Um, you know, there's a centre in Montreal that they toured Ban Ki-moon, the, the uh, UN Secretary General, through, but so far they haven't even let parliamentarians go and see it and, and try and learn from some of the people uh, fighting this uh, concept. And um, that, that's troubling. The, the, like I said, this is, this is a relatively new phenomenon. We know there's risks already in Canada from it. Uh, C-51 and some of the modest measures we took to give law enforcement some new powers to, to stop or disrupt these attacks uh, is, is, is necessary, and the government hasn't said what, what they're going to do other than to dismantle some of those powers. I, I well, think we don't know what, on this particular case, and, and you've got to be careful case by case, which I appreciate, Goodale says the attack appears to have been isolated, and there's no imminent threat to public safety. But, of course, you're right to say that there's no way we can't see it through the prism of what those two other events. But the question is, we just don't have a lot of facts yet about what motivated this guy. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the Toronto Police Service, working closely with the RCMP and CSIS, will look into this incident. Uh, the, the, uh, the attack at a, at a basic level looks like it was motivated by 
by ill-conceived uh, terror sympathies or politics or, or something like that. We'll find out exactly what. But this, when you connect it, as I said, to the fact that he went into a recruiting center where he knew he would see a lot of Canadian Armed Forces yeah. people. You know, I've been in that, that center myself on Young Street. I've had a lot of friends work there and, and joined the military through there. Um, that was that was targeted, it appears, because of the uniforms they wear. Much sim- very similar to Patrice Vincent and Nathan Cirillo were targeted. Well, after not Patrice, for who they were. yeah, and I get that. Uh, speaking of uh, Aaron O'Toole, you know, after the Vincent attack, at first there was this warning from the military: officers should not wear their uniforms in public because they could be targeted. Then there was a backlash. Wait a second, we are not going to be cowering away from wearing our uniforms. And yet some thought, but this is a new phenomenon. Where are you on that? Should they wear their uniforms or not if they are being targeted? Um, Great question, Evan, because I debated this a lot with some of my friends still in the military and some veterans who didn't want military members to feel intimidated and were upset when the former Chief of Defence Staff, General Lawson, um, you know, uh, announced a bit of a pause in terms of wearing your uniform if you're going to to go grocery shopping after work or something like this. What I said is if if leadership in the Canadian Armed Forces feels that for a time they need to change the status quo to to uh, to halt potential risks, right. I'm never going to second, second guess the leadership of the forces trying to take care of their people. Uh, at the same time, we have to make sure that if, if there's threats like this in our society that are, are attacking our institutions and parts of our state and the people that work with it, we have to address those things at the same time. We just can't suggest that this is the new normal. Well, I, I agree. And I remember speaking to the CDS at the time was, as you say, General Lawson. On one hand, the safety and security of our men and women in uniform is paramount. On the other hand, some lunatics, terrorists, call them what you want, should not, you know, the thought that our men and women would not be proud to wear their uniform, and I know you as a veteran, is a big issue. You know, that just drives me crazy that, 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 they would not feel that they cannot they wear their uniform because we want them to be proud of it and we don't want them. But, you know, the safety is important. It's, it's a fundamentally difficult issue, as you know. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I stand on, you know, you just hope we never have to ask our men and u- women in uniform to take that uniform off for their own safety in our own country. Absolutely. You know, the October attacks came, you know, a month or so before Remembrance Week and, and there was a fear that that we'd have to subdue those important commemoration ceremonies. Um, what what they did at the time was they they curtailed people running errands or things after yeah. work, and then eventually they dropped that. And I thought that was a, a a good thing to to look at. At the end of the day, though, this is a relatively new phenomenon, Evan, and um, we have to make sure we work with law enforcement to to deal with it head on, but also realize that if the military need to make some decisions, they feel in the short term are are keeping their people safe. You know, that's what we charge them to do. I just hope the government sees that this is a real issue that needs to be addressed with law enforcement and with civic organizations. Uh, and we can't just suggest that these ed- incidents aren't part of a, of a wider risk that we need to get a handle on. Yeah, even if they are lone attacks, they're part of something that is clearly emerging as some kind of pattern and a, and a, and a nasty one. Aaron O'Toole, official opposition critic for public safety, former captain in the RCAF. Always a pleasure to have you on the program, sir. Thank you very much, Evan. Aaron O'Toole speaking with Evan Solomon earlier today here on News Talk 580 CFRA. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. We're going to continue to monitor <clears throat> what is happening on this front, and I'm sure we'll be speaking about it for several days. 
but also monitoring what is happening in the United States right now, where, well, on CNN right now, John Kane is showing me a lot of uh, blue and red maps. A lot of blue and red maps and a lot of Hillary Clinton support down there. We'll get into that later on. Coming up after news at the top of the hour. Before I tell you that, quick story about myself and John King. I don't think I've met him. I, I think we've been in the, the same room at same events together, but I don't think I've actually met him. But I did have to fill in for him once on uh, on CNN TV. I did not appear on CNN TV to do that. They could not get in touch with him during that riot I was telling you about in the Summit of the Americas in Quebec City. The rioters shut everything down. Tear gas was going everywhere. So they they actually had to shut down the building ventilation system. And all the reporters, or most of the reporters, were locked in the building with the politicians. So John Kane is supposed to be there, and they had a spot for him to run to if riots happened. And he'd have a nice perch, be able to see. They'd be able to broadcast. He couldn't get to it. He was not allowed outside of the building for quite some time. And I was there as a roving reporter for uh, a Montreal radio station affiliated with CNN. I I was on the air for, I don't know, seemed like forever, but it was a good long time in the middle of tear gas. And uh, honestly, just coughing through tear gas and uh, and still reporting. It's a lot of fun, but yeah, only because they couldn't get John Kane. That's how I ended up on CNN television with all my family back home watching. When we come back after news at the top of the hour, we'll speak with Anthony Fury about Canada moving back towards the UN. I got some disturbing news if one of your issues is how Israel is treated at that body. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. On News Talk 580 CFRA. So the Prime Minister is headed to New York City. The city so nice they named it twice. New York, New York. But he's not going down to check out the Empire State Building or anything like that. Uh, Justin Trudeau's a world traveler. I'm sure he's done all of that in the past. No, he's going down to reassert once again that Canada is back with the United Nations. You know how I feel about the UN. It's no different now that Justin Trudeau's in power than it was when Stephen Harper was in power. I do not like us cozying up to this organization. I'm not alone, thankfully. Anthony Fury is columnist with the Ottawa Sun, the Toronto Sun, and I spoke with him about his column earlier today. Now, listen to this, and then we get, when we get to the end, I want to bring you some disturbing information I didn't have when I talked to Anthony a few hours ago. But here's our chat earlier today. So, Anthony, you don't seem too impressed with Justin Trudeau and his desire to go back into the United Nations whole hog. Why not? Well, I, I mean, look, I'm always happy when Canada can go and sit at some world forum some big round table and be a leader. My big concern is whether or not we're actually going to be a leader or not. And in my column in today's papers, the main thing that I'm pointing out here, Brian, is that I I really want to see Canada be a force for moral clarity as opposed to moral relativism. One of the organizations at the UN I've been highly critical of is the UN Human Rights Council. And this week they were holding a series of meetings 
there was an attempt to bring non-governmental organizations like UN Watch wanted to bring in different people to speak who are critical of some of the more despotic regimes that are out there. They're critical of places like North Korea and the Russians and the Chinese and others tried to block it. But Canada, under the Trudeau government, so kudos to them. People keep saying, oh, Lily, you only criticize Trudeau. No, kudos to them. They actually stood up. Anthony, are you seeing anything uh, in the way this new Trudeau government is working when it comes to organizations like the U.N. that's making you feel good? Uh, yes and no. The prime minister has, has made it clear we want to be back in the U.N. fold, and that's that's his way of sort of making a bit of a dig at, at Stephen Harper. Of course, they're still kind of in opposition mode and campaign mode. Everything has to be, look how we're different than Harper, rather than just solely defined by who they are and what they are. But they want to say that Harper, he didn't like the U.N. We do. We love it, and we're going we're gonna to join the Kumbaya circle. And again, to my point, I, I think it's fine if you're in the circle if you're being uncompromising in support of your values. Now, when the UN was first formed, it was only a handful of countries, and the Western countries were the ones who called the shots, and they made it clear that our values and our rules and our way of life are the good things. This is what's driving life forward, driving GDP per capita higher, democracy, equality, all on the rise because of the things that these Western countries are doing. And then we let in all these democ- uh, all these, uh, all these dictatorships and theocracies, and they started dragging down the average. Now, that's, you know, that's to be expected, and at some point, countries in the world are going to have to sit down and chat. So I'm not surprised that we're sitting down with these unsavory characters. I just really don't like it when Western countries, and I think this is the origins definitely of Stephen Harper's critique, and I believe of yours, I don't like it when Western countries just kind of shrug it off and let that kind of watering down and mediocrity permeate everywhere. What's happening this week and why Trudeau is in, is in New York, not just to announce that we're going to pursue a, a seat on the Security Council in the coming years, but he's doing a bunch of gender equality events. Perfect test case scenario to see whether we stand up for the Western definition of gender equality or we let countries like Saudi Arabia think that their backwards misogynist ways are in fact acceptable. The example that you use is Saudi Arabia. Uh, this is a country that we all know isn't good for women. I mean, are they are they even allowed to drive? Was that a test case? I'm not I'm not sure. But we know that Saudi Arabia is they're held in high esteem at the U.N. They're recently given special status at uh, the U.N. Human Rights Council. But we can also look to places like China, where they have a seat on the Security Council, Anthony. And this is a country that has policies that are oppressive to women. They've only recently just loosened up on the one-child policy. They used to have forced abortions. Girls are in short supply in China because of this policy. I mean, if anything says women are not held to the same uh, in the same esteem as men, it would be that. So uh, this is an organization that puts countries that don't deserve to be on a pedestal on a pedestal. But do you think regular Canadians actually get that? Or do you think that Canadians look at the U.N. through rose-colored glasses and refuse to see it for what it is. Well, certainly. I think that a lot of folks in Western countries, sort of average Canadians, average Americans and Brits and so on, say, well, of course we should sit around and and talk about our differences and talk about how to make the world a better place with other countries, because that's how you do it, through community and through these meetings and so forth. They are completely right. I completely agree with them. But we just have to be the leaders and the forces for moral clarity 
at those tables. So to your point about those various women's issues in China and, of course, Saudi Arabia, Canada, and again to the Liberals' credit, on International Women's Day, Trudeau released a statement saying things like gender-based violence and, and uh, arranged marriages and so forth, for, sorry, forced marriages, those things are bad, we shouldn't be having them, and clearly he was making an international statement when he said that, and I applaud him for saying that. And um, status of women minister Patty Hadju is there right now at events uh, making similar sorts of statements. I just hope they carry it on and that when they're speaking at the General Assembly, which I imagine Trudeau will do maybe at some point during this term, he will be just as forceful in terms of, hey, Canada is a great, awesome country. We're one of the best countries in the world. We rank top 10 in pretty much every single indicator. You guys need to be more like us. And when we speak, you need to listen, and we're proud of our way of life. Because right now, Brian, we're at a, a very sad position in history where Western values is what's made life so great, and yet so few people are willing to stand up for those values because they're just ashamed or they're too politically correct. Well, believe it or not, Anthony, I actually want the country to do well on the international stage. I want Canada to do well at places like the U.N. because whether I like Justin Trudeau as the prime minister or not, he's in power for four years. We want the country to look good on the international stage. But there's one area where I, I'm really worried, and that's Israel. Israel is picked on at the U.N. more than every other country. It's the only democracy in the Middle East. They're picked on more than every other country in the world combined. I'm not going to say that the liberals aren't a friend of Israel, but the fact is they have said they want to go back to our honest broker role, whatever that is. But to me, it sounds like the relativism that you were discussing in your column. Yeah, I am worried on the Israel issue. Uh, there are a number of uh, a new slate of MPs who have said some rather questionable remarks about Israel, or a new slate of MPs who are who are more prone to to supporting the Palestinian cause in the Liberal Caucus. You expect that out of the NDP, but there is a time not that long ago, just more than a decade ago, when the Liberal Party was a very firm defender of Israel, and there are a number of people in the caucus who were very strong. Uh, voices in support of Israel. Those people are no longer in the Liberal Caucus, and, and and this is this is not your your father's Liberal Party. This is not even your older brother's Liberal Party. Things are very very different, uh, even since Paul Martin was Prime Minister, in terms of how how the party has moved sort of culturally left on a number of issues. And Israel is definitely one of those ones. So while I, I am optimistic that Trudeau is going to do right, the right thing internationally in terms of speaking up for say women's issues, I, I really don't think we're going to be a, a, an honest broker on Israel. I think we're just going to be more sort of accepting of the disproportionate criticism that you outlined, Brian. All right. That is my chat with Anthony Fury from earlier today. Now, I told you about, and this is the new information, trying to get somebody on about this. We'll, we'll track this down. I told you about the, the United Nations looking at appointing someone named Penny Green, a British academic, to be the UN Special Rapporteur on Palestine which essentially just means that she would be in charge of picking on Israel, and she is an anti-Israeli British academic, someone who's questioned why the U.K. and the U.S. have not been bombing Israel the way they've bombed ISIS. Well, it turns out, and this is from a news release put out by, or an open letter, sorry, put out by Tony Clement, official opposition critic for foreign affairs, and Peter Kent, the deputy critic on foreign affairs, They've sent an open letter to the prime minister ahead of his trip to the U.N. because they want to make sure that Canada is not going to support this, this Miss Green, but also that they don't support the second ranked 
person for this job, which is someone named Michael Link, a Canadian academic who is playing a leading role, they say, in the Canadian-Palestinian Education Exchange, a group which promotes Israeli Apartheid Week events, addresses one-state conferences which seek to eliminate Israel, and even calls for the prosecution of Israel for war crimes. Mr. Link also blamed the events of 9-11 on global inequalities and disregard by Western nations for the international rule of law. Interesting. Again, the UN picking on the only democracy in the Middle East. Canadian academic could soon be the UN's special rapporteur for picking on Israel. The Conservative Party saying... Canada needs to stand up and say no. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. He has all but said he is dropping out of the race. Marco Rubio, the junior senator from Florida, has not win, won his home state. As, the, um, as it currently stands, with 83% of the vote in, Donald Trump is at 45.5%. Marco Rubio is at 27.3%. Moments ago, he said that this is not the year for a, a message of hope and optimism. Let's bring Marco Rubio up and listen live. And so I am grateful to all of you that have worked so hard for me. I truly am. I am grateful to my family, to my wife, Jeanette, who has been phenomenal in this campaign. To my four kids who have been extraordinary in this campaign. And I want you to know that I will continue every single day to search for ways for me to repay some of this extraordinary debt that I owe this great country. And I want to leave with an expression of gratitude to God, in whose hands all things lie. He has a plan for every one of our lives. Everything that comes from God is good. God is perfect. God makes no mistakes. And he has things planned for all of us. And we await eagerly to see what lies ahead. And so I leave tonight with one final prayer. And I use the words of King David because I remain grateful to God. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. May God strengthen our people. May God strengthen our nation. May God strengthen the conservative movement. May God strengthen the Republican Party. May God strengthen our eventual nominee. And may God always bless and strengthen this great nation, the United States of America. Thank you, and God bless you all.
Thank you very much. A very difficult speech for Marco Rubio and a very uh, difficult fall for him and his political campaign, David Axelrod. I mean, it is a, it's a tough thing to do. It is. It is. It's always a tough thing to do. It was, and it, well, you saw the, both the strength and weakness of Marco Rubio, right? They're a very inspiring speech. But, and he talked about building a bridge to all factions of the Republican Party. But there's an element of trying to be all things to all people there. And when, you, when you're running, particularly within a party, you have to have a base. And he never had a base. He tried to be everybody's favorite and ended up as nobody's, uh, nobody's choice. Mm. You know, uh, he all right. began... That is CNN's coverage. That was David Axelrod, you heard, responding to a question from Anderson Cooper. David Axelrod, of course, the man who was... I guess, the shaper of the campaign that brought us Barack Obama as president. Now he's a, a pundit, used to be a political consultant, once trained uh, a young liberal member of provincial parliament and leader of Ontario's opposition party named Dalton McGuinty. So talking about how Marco Rubio never really had a base. And I guess he's right. I remember the first time a friend told me, you've got to check out this Marco Rubio. It was around 2010. And he was riding on the Tea Party wave, and boy, did the guy look good. As you heard, he's articulate. He speaks well. He's got a great story. And he came to Washington with so much promise. He got, I guess... Messed up in the gain of eight, which was an attempt to bring about immigration reform, but from the wrong side, as far as the base of the Republican Party was concerned. And immigration has been an issue. It's actually an issue for Democrats and Republicans, but only Republican politicians still even pay lip service to to fixing it. Most Americans, if you look at the polling, want illegal immigration stopped. Marco Rubio came up with a plan that did not sit well. That kind of helped destroy his ties with the activist side of the conservative movement of the party, despite the fact that he has a very conservative voting record, a very conservative voting record, and he's a bright young man, and I'm sure it's not the end of his political career. Something else will come along, but um, he is all but said he's stepping out right now. Donald Trump, of course, taking uh, Florida, Hillary Clinton taking it for the Democrats. John Kasich is still out in front in Ohio. Last time I checked, uh, it's um, tight but not that close in North Carolina. We'll get to more of that after news at the bottom of the hour. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Marco Rubio is out of the race to be the Republican nominee for president after what can only be described as a dismal result in his home state of Florida, taking just 27% of the vote compared to Donald Trump's 45%. Here's part of what Rubio was saying and what happened at his event earlier. I just want you to know there's nothing more you could have done. You worked as hard as anyone worked. I want you to know we worked as hard as we ever could. But, well, America's in the middle of a 
of, of a real political storm, a real tsunami, and, and we should have seen this coming. Look, people are angry and people are very frustrated. It really began back in 2007, 2008, with this horrifying downturn. Don't worry, we're, you won't get beat up at our event. We, uh, people are very frustrated about the direction of our country. Thank you. It's really... We, uh, thank you. It's really too bad that that happened there with the protester interrupting because... And I'm going to play more of Rubio there because he, he has a, a great story and an understanding. He has a great story to tell. And just some jerk has to be in there and start yelling. I don't, I, I don't condone that for any politician speech. Let them speak. So since he's leaving the race, let's hear a little bit more from Marco Rubio. People are very frustrated about the direction of our country. We, uh, thank you. People are frustrated. In 2007 and 2008, there was a horrible downturn in our economy. And these changes to our economy that are happening are disrupting people's lives. And people are very upset about it. And they're told that, uh, you know, they're, they're, people are angry, they're frustrated, they're being left behind by this economy. And then they're told, look, if you're against illegal immigration, that makes you a bigot. And if you see jobs and businesses leaving to other countries, you have no right to be frustrated. They see America involved in the world and Americans spending money and losing their lives. And they see that there's very little gratitude for all the sacrifice America makes. And quite frankly, there's millions of people in this country that are tired of being looked down upon, tired of being told by these self-proclaimed elitists that they don't know what they're talking about and they need to instead listen to the so-called smart people. And I know all these issues firsthand. I've lived paycheck to paycheck. I grew up paycheck to paycheck. I know what it's like to have to figure out how to find the money to fix the air conditioner that broke last night. I know my parents struggled, and I know millions of people that are doing that. I know immigration in America is broken. No one understands this issue better than I do. My parents are immigrants. My grandparents were immigrants. Jeanette's parents were immigrants. I live in a community of immigrants. I've seen the good and the bad and the ugly. I've battled my whole life against the so-called elites, the people who think that, uh, you know, I needed to wait my turn or wait in line or it wasn't our chance or it wasn't our time. So I understand all of these frustrations. And yet when I decided to run for president, I decided to run a campaign that was realistic about all of these challenges, but also one that was, one that was optimistic about what lies ahead for our country. I know that we have a right to enforce our immigration laws, but we also have to have a realistic approach to fix it. I know that we are living through this extraordinary economic transformation that is really disruptive in people's lives. Machines are replacing them. Their pay is not enough. I know it's disruptive. But I also know this new economy has incredible opportunity. I know America can't solve all of the world's problems. But I also know that when America doesn't lead, it leaves behind a vacuum. And that vacuum leads to chaos. And most of all, I know firsthand that ours is a special nation because where you come from here doesn't decide where you get to go. That's how a 44-year-old son of a bartender and a maid, that's how I decide 
that in fact I too can run for President of the United States of America. So, from a political standpoint... All right, let's, let's fade down on Marco Rubio there. But I want you to think about this. You heard how he described himself there. 44-year-old son of a maid and a bartender. Marco Rubio was born in 1971. May 28, 1971. A few months before myself. And a couple, mo- couple months earlier than our current prime minister. They both speak very well. They have very different backgrounds, though. And Justin Trudeau is going to lead Canada at age 44. Marco Rubio will not. It's actually interesting that the, the people that are going to be in the running to be president are some of the oldest people ever to try and take office. I mean, they're going to be channel or uh, challenging uh, Ronald Reagan. Donald Trump is already sixty nine years old. Sixty nine years old. He will be seventy in June. That is older than Ronald Reagan was when he was elected, and Reagan is currently the oldest elected president. Hillary Clinton just behind him. Bernie Sanders, pff, he's way past all of them. Trump, by the way, winning uh, pretty much everywhere tonight. Uh, No, no, sorry. Not Ohio. And jump up in the air like Drew Carey and yell, Ohio! Uh, Kasich taking that. Why do I pay so much attention to American politics? Because it matters. Because who wins in the United States is going to have a big impact on Canada, on Canada's economy. And... The two people that are pretty much unstoppable now, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, have both said they want to rip up trade agreements like NAFTA. Even if Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton only try and take apart little bits and pieces of NAFTA, let's say they decide, you know what, we need to stand up for American farmers. You know what that does to... The beef producers across Canada, there's thousands of beef producers inside Ottawa. There's thousands within the sound of my voice right now. And then there's even more spread out across the country. It is a major industry for this country. And our biggest market is, of course, the United States. That's just one example. They do something that slows down the border, all of a sudden... Those auto parts plants in southern Ontario, they can't deliver on time. All of this matters greatly, and it troubles me that the the two frontrunners, the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump, and the Democratic frontrunner, Hillary Clinton, both have very negative things to say about trade with Canada. That should concern all of us. Now, Clinton... You hear Donald Trump say, if Hillary's allowed to run. I want to play a clip from a a debate CNN had with the Democrats last week, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And she she was asked about this idea of the possibility that she could be indicted over her email scandal. Because that's why Donald Trump says, if she can run. Well, 
Jorge Ramos, who's um, he's on Univision. We don't get that up here, really, but he's a big deal down there. He asked directly to Hillary Clinton if she would step down. You won't believe her response. I think that what we've got here is a case of overclassification. I, forgive am your permission. I am not concerned about it. I am not worried about it. And no Democrat or American should be either. The, the questions were, Secretary Clinton, the questions were, who gave you permission to cooperate there, there, with there, President Obama? There was no permission to be asked. It had been done by my predecessors. It was permitted. I didn't have to ask anyone. If you get indicted, would you drop out? Oh, for goodness. That is not going to happen. I'm not even answering that question. I'm not even answering that question. The arrogance of that woman is unbelievable. But when you've been getting away with things forever the way the Clintons have, of course you're going to be that arrogant. When you can walk away from land deals where some of your friends actually went to jail and you walk away unscathed, of course you're going to be that arrogant. When you walk away from the scandals that were in the White House while she was there, when you walk away from the scandal that's still following her, the reason that people know about the email troubles that Hillary Clinton's having is over the whole Benghazi issue and the lies that she told, the lies that she told to the American public versus what she told to her own family. She told her own family it was a terrorist attack. She told the American people it was a YouTube video, asked about it before a congressional committee. She said, oh, what difference does it make? The woman is unreal. I'm sure that we'll check in more. We'll be opening up the phone lines. Marco Rubio raised a point that I want to relate to Canadian politics when we open up the phone lines just after 9, and that is about being told what issues matter and what issues don't by our better thans. So just after 9, we'll open up the phone lines on that, 521-TALK, 521-8255, or star 580 on Bell Mobility. And I'm sure that we will probably be dropping in on Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton if they speak and if they have something interesting to say later on. This is Beyond the News. I'm Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. You've probably heard by now that charities are under attack in Canada. It has been an ongoing theme in the media for a long time. All right, you know those conservatives, they went after the green charities because they didn't like them because they called them terrorists. You know, the, you know, those charities, the ones the government didn't like. I want to talk to you a little bit about that because it's in the news again today. We have environmental charities, a, a coalition of um, a coalition of environmental charities who are Telling the the liberal government of Justin Trudeau, hey, you got to hurry up on this. You got to make sure that um, that you uh, stop the the audit process. See, back in two thousand and twelve, 
the conservatives decided that they wanted to look at more of the political activities of charities. Charities are allowed to do a small amount of political work, but they're supposed to spend most of their time, their money, their resources on their charitable activity. So if you're a charity that is there to feed the poor, well, then you spend your money on feeding the poor. You don't spend it on politics. You don't spend 80% of your money on lobbying for a $20 an hour minimum wage and and then spend the you know what's left on feeding the poor. That's that's not what you're supposed to do. That would not be defined as a charity charitable organization under Canada's laws. So in 2012 they decided that they would up this. They estimated that over the 4 years from 2012 to 2016 that there would be 3,700 charity audits. 3,700 charity audits. Their plan was to do an additional 60 focused on political activity. There are 86,000 registered charities in Canada. 86,000. You know how many have lost their charitable status or shut down? 37. 37,000. Not 37, period. 37,000. I've got the story with the documents that you need to see up on my Facebook page right now, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly, because we've got to push back on and, and, and get some reality or put, put some context behind stories. Because if you just hear, while well, the government's going after environmental charities, you think, okay, um, conservatives, yep, they don't like environmental groups because they back oil, so they're going after them. Not necessarily. As I said, 60 out of 3,700 charity audits. And charities should be audited. Charities should absolutely be audited. I went randomly through some of the groups that um, are, uh, some of the groups that are, have been, had their charitable status revoked in the past. Just went randomly through them. I'm going to open up some of their forms right here as we talk, and I'll read it to you. The Canadian Foundation for Tamil Refugee Rehabilitation. They had their charitable status revoked because they were handling more than $720,000, and according to the Canada Revenue Agency, they believe that it was merely a support network for the Tamil Tigers, the Liberation Ta- Tigers of Tamil Elam also known as the Tamil Tigers, and also known as a banned terrorist organization. Not all of them are terrorist organizations. There was another group called, and again, I picked these at random. I scrolled through the list of revoked charities on CRA's website, just started opening them, reading them. I wasn't looking for anything in particular. I was looking for one, but the rest I just randomly opened. I knew the name of the one that I wanted to find. The Canadian Worldwide Development and Disaster Relief Organization. Hmm, why'd they lose their charitable status? Well, because they were audited, and it was revealed the charity was not complying with the requirements set out in the Act. In particular, the audit revealed that the charity's books and records were non-existent, preventing the CRA from determining whether the charity's resources were devoted to its charitable activities or whether any charitable activities were even undertaken. Hmm. You can go on and on. 
There's a tiny little group called Greenpeace. Maybe you've heard of them. Actually, they're massive. We had their co-founder on last week, Patrick uh, Patrick Moore. Left the organization long ago. He left them while they were still pretty close to being an environmental charity instead of an activist group. Greenpeace lost their charitable status for their political activities because they'd become essentially political actors. They lost it under Jean Chrétien and the liberals back in the 90s. They lost their status in 1998. They didn't lose it under Mulroney. They didn't lose it under Harper. They lost it under Chrétien because the majority of their work was political. And that's not the CRA saying, well, you can't, you can't be political. It's CRA saying, if you want to be political, do it on your own dime. The Tax Act, the, uh, the tax laws in Canada, give special status to charities because of the work they do. The tax laws in Canada give special status to charities because they're supposed to be building up our community in one way or the other. In fact, that's, that's one of the uh, categories of charity. Let me read them off to you. Uh, there's four that they break them down by. Advancement of education, advancement of religion, relief of poverty, and other purposes beneficial to the community. Hmm. Out of all of that, as I said, 60 were taken. Four or 60 were going to be um, given audits over four years. 60 over four years. And this was the crackdown. This was the big bad conservatives adding 60 extra audits to 3,700 existing charitable audits over the same time period. Of those groups, they went through, they looked at their filings, they looked at tips, they looked at media coverage. Most of the, the groups that they decided to give a second look at came from the group's own filings. Well, they decided on 52 eventually. Nine of them were groups whose purpose was the advancement of education. Six of them were advancement of religion. Two were the relief of poverty, and 35 were other purposes beneficial to the community. If you speak to people who are active in the charitable sector, they will tell you audits happen all the time. This push by some in the media and the environmental movement to make this out as they were being given special, horrible treatment, it's simply not true. It can't be believed, and it has to be taken. You need to take a second look at it. So I invite you to go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Lilly. You can get the background information. You can see the documents for yourself. You can do your own homework. If you believe me, then please share the story. If not, you can drop me a note, beyond the news at CFRA.com. Tell me I'm full of it. When we come back, we will go to the phone lines. We will get to your feedback, and we will ask you about listening to those that say they're better than us, and they know what issues we should be talking about. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. 
I told you I want to hear from you about the elites. Marco Rubio was talking a lot about elites. And despite the label put upon him by some, the man does not come from elites. His parents were, his father was a bartender, his mother was a maid. Um, He did not grow up wealthy. He's doing all right now, but he didn't grow up wealthy. But he's also was talking just about that idea that there are going to be people saying what you can talk about and what you can't talk about. And quite frankly, there's millions of people in this country that are tired of being looked down upon, tired of being told by these self-proclaimed elitists that they don't know what they're talking about and they need to instead listen to the so-called smart people. That happens in this country as well, and it's infuriating. And it relates back to what I was discussing at the very beginning of the show. Toronto's police chief was asked about the suspect in the terrorism case potentially being on drugs, and was he going to have a drug test done on the, the suspect, went off about Islamophobia. One of the things that I, I want to be very, very careful of um, when it comes to the national security piece, that we don't go through that uh, Isla- Islamophobia nonsense. Um, people are the very small numbers, very small minutiae of numbers of people. So I don't want this categorizing of a large group of people. That would be very unfair and very inaccurate. Do you need a do you need a lecture from Toronto's police chief about Islamophobia? Do the people of Toronto need a lecture about Islamophobia as he's discussing someone who is stabbing soldiers while saying that Allah told him to go and kill people? Because I don't, and I doubt you do either. But we're told time and again that there's a certain way to talk about things or a certain way that we can think. And I want to know what gets under your skin. What are you tired of being told by the people in charge that we can't, well, you've got to think this way or you've got to do it this way or no, no, let's not bring that up. You're a bigot if you think that. Because the people in the United States that are lining up and saying, I've had enough with legal immigration, they're being told they're bigots. People that called for the rush to get 25,000 Syrian refugees into Canada by the end of December, last the end of last December, Kathleen Wynne actually stood up and, and said, well, you're a bigot if you are against um, the sex ed curriculum in Ontario. You're a homophobe. These labels are thrown around to shut you up. What are you tired of being told to sit down and shut up about? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. One of the ones that bugs me was just in the newscast. We've got this young woman in Ottawa offended that she saw an ad. And I talked about the ad the other day. An ad that simply says abortion stops a beating heart. It doesn't have graphic images. It doesn't have words. It simply says abortion stops a beating heart. So some people start complaining on Facebook, and now there's this media campaign to get it it taken down. And this woman, Kayla Spagnoli, says she's shocked, shocked, and she's reaching for the smelling salts over the fact that a bus like an ad like this can even be on a city bus. 
I think OC Transfer should probably apologize for having it up in the first place. I would like to see it removed, and I would like to see the city or start thinking about how advertising like this affects young people. How does it affect young people? It tells them scientific facts? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility, or 1-800-580-2372. What gets under your skin? To me, that's, that's one of mine, being told that we cannot even have a discussion about the issue of abortion. This is a, a, an organization that says to women, if you're pregnant and scared, there's another option. They offer help in all kinds of ways. Why should they not be allowed to get their message out? Why do they need to be told, sit down, shut up? You know, Chief Saunders in Toronto was talking about Islamophobia, and he doesn't want everyone painted with the same brush. Do you ever notice that, and and this is going to get on to another one of mine, do you ever notice that we're told that we can't blame all Muslims for an Islamic terrorist, But as soon as there is a mass shooting, you can blame all gun owners and want to take their guns away or make it more difficult for the law-abiding to get a gun. That's acceptable. Why? Why the difference? I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Let's play Marco Rubio again one more time before we go because he sums up what I'm asking you today. Marco Rubio speaking in Florida, saying that he understands how angry people are at being told what to say, what to think. And quite frankly, there's millions of people in this country that are tired of being looked down upon, tired of being told by these self-proclaimed elitists that they don't know what they're talking about and they need to instead listen to the so-called smart people. The so-called smart people. Have you had enough of listening to the so-called smart people? Give us a call. 521-TALK. 521-8255. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Go out on the campaign trail and and deliver a message to America because you believe that you, you believe that you are the best qualified person to be president of the United States. And you put it all on the line. And your family puts it all on the line. And I want this crowd here tonight to give a great a great response to a very, very great, talented, and fine United States Senator Marco Rubio for the effort that he has done. John Kasich, who finally has a couple of delegates because he won his home state of Ohio, congratulating Marco Rubio, who dropped out. This is just bizarre. I'm going to get to your calls in a second, but this is just bizarre that Kasich is still in the race, and, we went to a restaurant. and Marco Rubio is out. We thought we could kind of sneak How does that happen? Grab a quick Kasich has 129 delegates. That's fewer than Rubio had before he dropped out. And that's with the 60-60 wins in Ohio. 
just bizarre. I played you a clip earlier. I'm going to play it again and get to your calls. Marco Rubio, as he was dropping out, said something that relates to both sides of the border. This is not an American thing or a Canadian thing. This is just about people being fed up of being talked down to. And quite frankly, there's millions of people in this country that are tired of being looked down upon, tired of being told by these self-proclaimed elitists that they don't know what they're talking about and they need to instead listen to the so-called smart people. Are you tired of listening to the so-called smart people, the ones that will tell you what is and is not acceptable? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Sam in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Hi, Brian. Hi. What are you sick and tired of, Sam? Well, I'm actually quite a young caller here. Um, I'm only 18 years old, and there's a few different things that I'm sick and tired of hearing. Um, uh, One is that I'm too young to have an opinion on a lot of things. And well, you're agree. just 18, Sam, so hold on there. I can't let you speak about that anymore. <laughs> Go on. Funny. Um, I do believe that, you know, uh, I just got out of high school, and in high school, you know, we're kind of told, like, oh, you don't know enough of the facts and everything. Um, and I think we're not taught enough of the facts in high school to be given a proper, to be able to, like, create a proper opinion for ourselves. So that's one thing that I think is overlooked. Um, there's been talk recently, and I, I can't tell you exactly where and where I read this and where I heard it, but there's been talk about lowering the voting age, and that's something that I'm definitely for because um, I think if we're told um, as students that we have to decide uh, what we want to do with our life at 17, we should be able to decide who we want to run our country at that age too. Um, so that's one of the things. Another thing I'm sick and tired of being told is I'm offended um, <laughs> like, like the young woman with who's offended at the bus ad, so to her, the bus ad shouldn't exist. Um, I'm not all for the bus ad, but honestly, I'm I I'm sick and tired of hearing the word "I'm offended" because right away well, you don't have any, to be for the bus ad. You just have to no. believe that there is there exists in this country freedom of speech. And yeah, and I think that's what we're missing. I mean, even going through high school nowadays, um, you can barely talk about anything, and I think that's really affecting what we're learning in high school. Like, we're learning nothing. I just graduated last year, and I found I didn't take away much from high school other than, like, the power of, like, like bullshitting. Um, <laughs> and I'm sorry to say that, but it's true. Um, I think the words I'm offended have changed our entire schooling system, and I feel that that was greatly affected, and I don't feel prepared to go into university, and I think that's why so many people nowadays are switching programs, dropping out of university. Like, there's just so little that we can talk about, especially in school systems, because teachers get in trouble so often. Or or they don't want you to have critical thinking. They just want you to listen. Thanks yeah. for the call, Sam. Yeah, thanks so much. All the best. And keep listening. George in Arnprior. We'll get to you, George. Don't worry. There we go. George in Arnprior. Good day. Good day to you. I get everybody against me that's the latest. Anyway, you can probably get... You what? No, all, all elitists are against me because my ideas seem sort of strange. Well, look, George, I've been listening to this station long enough and been behind this microphone long enough to know. Yeah, you are, you are strange, George. We well, all I'll know give you that. An, I'll give you an example. <laughs> Take today this year uh, thing with the drug injection sites, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they have another use. There are many people out there who, if they went over to the uh, marijuana of certain types, they like, like hash or whatever, they could actually reduce the painkillers they're getting from the doctors, actually reduce them so you have less effect of the painkillers. And some of the, the uh, marijuana derivatives could actually be used to cure cancer. They could actually set up, set up 
in those area cancer curing sites for certain types of cancer. There's work on certain types of uh, They could do that without having everyone sit around and shoot heroin at a heroin shooting gallery about four minute walk from me. No, but you understand what I mean. Right now, they don't. They don't want you. You're doing that because they. Uh, it's against the law. They're get cured <laughs> for certain things. That's one of the ideas I think about. But people would elitists would say, "Well, no, I'm pushing dope." Eh? Well, you know, I was talking about this with Barry Dworkin last week, and he was saying if if marijuana has all these healing properties, and let's not confuse marijuana and and heroin. We do take medicines from opioids and heroin is an opioid yeah. but if marijuana has all these healing properties then then let's extract it and it's far better to put it in some kind of medicine and and and, and then let's test it the way we do with everything else rather than just saying well let's legalize marijuana and let everyone smoke I'll give you another example you take the Niagara Falls when people say well it's it's shut down because of the windmills and and uh, and um um uh, to replace the power, the solar, right? yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, I said, well, they might have shut it down because they are trying to get extra power in case there's an earthquake that might, might destroy it. And they said, well, that'd be Ouija board thinking, eh? Well, if you look into the uh, present earthquakes in the, along the main Madrid fault there, you can see where there looks like there's a lot of activity from all that drilling. It could cause some kind of uh, problem. So you maybe they're thinking ahead of the problem. I don't know. You understand well, what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that that's why we're uh No, it may not be the down. reason, but uh, I just thought, thought I'd throw it out there because they moved one of the military bases because it had a prediction uh, that later on, 20 or 30 years from now, there'd be a problem with the military base being there because of land movement from their laser research in space, you know, but uh, nobody listens to you. All right, George, thanks for the call. You might. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. What is it that is bugging you? What is it that you are tired of being told what to think on? It can be tired of being told by me what to think on certain issues. You can call in. Let me have it. You're always welcome. Dave in Centertown, you're on Beyond the News. How, how, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? You a fan of safe injection sites? No, I'm not. So you live in Centertown. I live in Centertown. So you're uh, actually I going to be affected by this. Uh, I frequent uh, Sandy Hill uh, thing the, quite a bit. The health center. Yeah, okay. And, and I, I was out west uh, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, they stay there, and uh, there's a lineup to get in, eh? Into the into the injection site. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So these guys are Jones in, and they uh, got their stuff there. Now we got their uh, works, and they just went into uh, the alley and do it anyways. Well, and that's the unfortunate part. Look, I, as I said last night, the answer, uh, Dave, is that we need to get people more treatment. We don't need to be getting people more heroin. There's no safe way to do heroin. Heroin is not good for you. Heroin is not safe. And giving people heroin isn't going to help. Donald in West Carlton, you're on Beyond the News. Good day. Good day. Just regarding these uh, bus ads. Yep. Abortion ads. I I couldn't believe, you know, these Danas and Kayla's and 
and granolas and stuff calling in. I mean, I don't care. I mean, if they they want to have an abortion themselves, fine. But the pro the thing is, later on when they do have children, they're going to remember that. And then who are they going to whine to? Now this thing about uh, being offended. Well, if they wanted to, they could go to the website of uh, on the back of that bus and uh, and find Rachel's Vineyard, which is an organization that helps. Yeah, and the thing the thing is. Uh, the way it is now, if, if if you lose control of your car or do something and a pregnant woman is killed, right, and they, mm-hmm. and they lose the baby, they also charge you and, and uh, uh, with, with killing that baby. And yet, how come... No, that, well, no, so, I, I don't believe they do. There have been attempts to make that law, and it gets shut down. But the, but the thing is, if, if other people can't, why can the mother, you see? I mean, it, it's it's too contradictory. Yeah, I mean, I mean, n- I mean it's, no, nobody it's, says they're I'm with themselves up on all the all these little whining parts about oh we want to do this and that. You know, they that, that bus said it told the truth. It wasn't gross. Do they not? If the thing is, if they hide the truth, well then they can do everything they want, and that's what society is doing now. It's hiding the truth all the time. It, it gets ridiculous. Uh, it's uh, it it is the. Um the fallout from having a an educational system where being offended is your trump card and where critical thinking goes out the window. This is part of the problem. It's part of the po- problem of coddling children uh, up through the age of young adulthood because the people complaining about this are adults in their 20s. We're just worried that they're offended. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. What's bugging you? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Kind of a, a freewheel and open house here. What are you sick and tired of being told by your better thans? Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. And quite frankly, there's millions of people in this country that are tired of being looked down upon. Tired of being told by these self-proclaimed elitists that they don't know what they're talking about and they need to instead listen to the so-called smart people. When you get police chiefs like Mark Saunders in Toronto responding to a question about was the suspect in the terror attack on drugs at the time, and he responds by talking about Islamophobia, that's the smarter people talking down to you. When you raise issues of cultural integration when it comes to large-scale immigration, and you get told, that's racist, that's smart people talking down to you. Time and again this happens, and that's, that's what leads to people like Donald Trump being on the rise, or in Germany, what led to the rise of these parties that are t- taking on Angela Merkel now, because people are upset, but they've been told there, there, dear. Don't worry. What's bugging you? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. We are talked down to on a regular basis by our elected officials. We're told that our concerns are not warranted. We're told if we have them, whether they're on types of concerns, get with it. What's bugging you? 521-TALK, 521-8255. Tammy in Orleans, you're on Beyond the News. 
Hi, Brian. Um, I, I am, you know, when you played the clip with Hillary Clinton, that just mm-hmm. really got my blood boiling. I, I don't get the adult. I mean, I, you know, you couldn't have put it more perfect. I don't, uh, I mean, this woman. She's I, smug and arrogant. Yes. Yes. And, you know, for her to, I'm not just even going to answer that. I, I have to wonder what's wrong with the American people. You know, the ones who are voting for her and, 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 and you know, standing by. I just don't understand, you know. You know, and then you hear what the, the Toronto police chiefs. I mean, that's just—I don't know what's wrong with today's world. It—it—it it, it just really gets me. I—I I don't know which one bothers me more. Well, I mean, for people for people that aren't following it, Tammy. I mean, the reason that Hillary Clinton is in trouble, and the reason she was asked, "Will you step down if you're indicted?" is is because she was using a private email server to send top secret information, including about secret American assets around the world that she had access to because she was the secretary of state the highest diplomat in the country mm-hmm. and 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 she was breaking the law she was putting lives at risk and she could be facing charges over this and she i'm not going to answer that question can you imagine mm-hmm. a canadian politician doing that i you know it just shakes my head but i i do like that you um Speak about the American politics and listen to it because we're not going to get the truth from the media. And uh, when I listen to you, I find I'm getting the truth. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, and, well, and you're mostly going to get how great Hillary is and yeah. Bernie's okay <laughs> and everyone that's a Republican is crazy. But I think you said a perfect the reason why Donald Trump is on the right is because of attitudes like hers. People are and, fed up. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and, and I just, you know, please keep it up. And thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Albert, Albert is in Thunder Bay. Good to speak to you again, Albert. In Thunder Bay, yes. Uh, what I'm irked about, mm-hmm. I'm tired of hearing about these refugees who aren't real refugees. Which ones do you mean? Well, the ones that we, that we just uh, imported into Canada over uh, the last few months. Well, some of them are going to be refugees, even if they didn't come but, from but the camps. Apparently, apparently very few of them are. Most of them uh, are uh, people that have been uh, in Lebanon and Turkey and various uh, areas of the Middle East for up to two, uh, two and three years. I, I get that, Albert. I'm the one that broke and, the and story. And a, a lot of them had jobs, and, and a lot of them had apartments and houses and whatnot. Yeah, I understand that, Albert. I'm the one that broke that story, right. and and the, what's the, what, those are not refugees in my mind. Well, some some of them would be because in some cases they were. Um, there are people who were in Lebanon or in Jordan. They yeah, were not. Well, hold on, let me speak. They were yeah. not allowed to work. You were because you were from Syria. They would just say you're not allowed to work, and, okay. and, and they're shunted off to the side. Maybe they were living in an apartment. And not in a camp, but still, you're not allowed to work. You're not given citizenship. You're not given a chance to have it. But you can't go home either because your home is bombarded all the time. So I I get that. But what bothered me about that story, Albert, was when they said very, very few came from the camps. They lived in apartments and houses. We were told we had to rush them through because they were living in camps. camps. 
And, and then when asked about it, they said, oh, we never said they were in camps. And then it was a day or so later, John McCallum again said, well, if you'd been to the camps and saw the conditions like I did. Right. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, I mean, we th- that refugee project, we were lied to time and again on that. And right. those of us that asked questions or said, slow down a bit, pal. Wait a minute. We, okay, we, were, no, called, the- we were called bigots. There's one more item on my agenda here, which I talked to you about last night. The I, I've the, got the link to the story. I haven't had a chance to, to watch it yet. Okay, the story is called Muslim Rape Slavery Comes to Canada by Ezra Levant, January 15, 2016. Yeah, once I saw the headline, people emailed it to me. It run a bell. Uh, but that, that, you know, that wasn't my story. That was Ezra's. So, but I will take yep. a look at it, Albert. Just had a very long and busy day. Well, you, you want to see something shocking, you take a look at that story. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I know the, the basics of it now. It, it, um, near media blackout on a, a sick story out of, uh, out of Montreal. We'll talk about that again. Thanks for the time, Albert. Okay. Maureen in Manatech. Maureen. Hello. Yes. You're calling about safe injection sites. I bet you want one on Manatick, Maine, don't you? No, I do such, not. It's such a beautiful street. Wouldn't it be better if people were shooting heroin out there? Nope. No? Nope. It, there's no such thing as a safe injection site. I agree. That's why I call them heroin injection sites. That's what they are. So. Who is pushing this? Um, there's been a, an activist professor at the University of Ottawa who's been pushing this sort of thing for a long time. Yeah. Uh, Mayor Watson, by the way, uh, very much against it. Why isn't he on the air about it? Uh, I believe he has been. I haven't invited him on this program yet, but um, I believe he has spoken out about it. Um, if I see him down at City Hall tomorrow, maybe I'll put a microphone in his face and talk to him for a little bit. I love that. Uh, but um, he uh, he's against it, many of the councillors, but if you remember, Maureen, what happened when the city council several years ago got rid of the crack pipe program because they tried it and they said, oh, I'm not sure it's working, the province pushed it on them. Yes. So we could end up with this whether we like it or not. There's uh, no way to stop it? Well, I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to see. I mean, the city can do what it can do. The federal government may end up pushing it. If they grant licenses to it, that Sandy Hill Community Center will likely um, be able to do it. You you also wanted to talk about Wilfrid Laurier. Yes, they want to take down Sir John A. Macdonald's statue. Why? They say they're going to. That's what I heard on the news. Oh, Uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. Yes. Okay. I remember something about this story last week. Yes, I only heard it once. Um, I'll look that up, and and you know what? If you want to get into the history of a lot of our politicians from way back and say, well, we have to take down Sir John A. statue because he was this or he was that or he was racist, you can look through all of their pasts and yes. find that, and I can do that to Wilfrid Laurier. So, I yes. mean, maybe the school has to change its name. Yes. All right, thanks for the call, Maureen. Thank you. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. You're listening to News Talk 580 CFRA.
Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Still waiting for Donald Trump to take the stage at um, his headquarters in Florida. He has not spoken yet, but he's the big winner tonight. It looks like he took four out of five states. Uh, Marco Rubio making interesting comments. It's kind of leading me to ask you, what are you sick and tired of? What are you bothered? What are you tired of people, the so-called smart people, telling you, don't worry about that? Paul is calling in from Florida. Paul, you're on Beyond the News. Spoke to you last night. How are you? Doing well. Um, I agree with everything Marco Rubio has said. Personally speaking, uh, I'm a dual citizen, so I'm fighting with myself, telling myself what to do. Do I stay and live in in a country run by Justin Bieber, um, or do I... Don't insult Justin Bieber. He's the more popular of the two. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, st- I stand corrected. Um, or Donald Trump. Um, I- I'm asking, I'm going to revert, I'm going to bend your question, ask you to tell me what to do. Oh, that I couldn't do. I, I, I'm against leaving um, your country based on who wins an election, though. Um, no, no, no. I, I'm just thinking, I just have some concerns. Everybody's complaining, you know, Brian, over the $20 trillion debt in the U.S. But I think if Mr. Trudeau, in fairness to him, to him you know, you can't keep, you know, like, for example, Bombardier giving them, I think, a billion. And why not give the oil producers 500 million, whatever the latest story is. I just think, you know, you got to put the checkbook away until you've done your homework. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it have, I may have missed that headline. So the oil producers might be getting money as well now, but not as much as Bombardier. Well, I think if I heard on the news the other day, and I stand to be corrected, but I caught the tail end of it. And they're looking, I think, to sort of. I don't use the word bailout. That's a Bombardier word. But um, I kind of think that, you know, to get them back on an even keel, I think the number was $500 million. Wow. So, you know, you know, I know it's only a number, but it's uh, it's kind of alarming because, you know. Um, well, I remember when there were a series of factories along Burlington Street in Hamilton, and uh, lots of men used to go work in those factories. And then it got to the point where those factories were no longer viable and so pierre trudeau used to subsidize them and guess what it was to save them but you know what happened paul mm-hmm. they just got addicted to the subsidies and then they they couldn't compete anymore there you go when when the subsidy money dried up they couldn't operate and that's the way it always works so it uh, it it's a short term solution that sometimes has the unintended long-term consequence of killing off what was there. And if I may throw in a final comment. Sure. Uh, how arrogant can Hillary Clinton be? Uh, does she think because she's married to Bill Clinton, who was a half-decent president, that automatically makes her a good president? Uh, that's arrogant. Absolute arrogant. Yeah. Well, I, I'm very happy that the American voters decided, um, on the Republican side, decided not to go with Jeb Bush. I'm disappointed that the Democrats have decided they do want to go with Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Ameri- did, Americans fought to get rid of yeah. um, Trump, dynasties. Trump tonight? Uh, Trump's won four out of five. So he lost um, Ohio. He lost Ohio. But, um, you know, why would you fight to get rid of uh, a, a hereditary monarchy and then just go to a rotating monarchy between the Bushes and the Clintons? Good Makes point. no sense to me. Thanks for the call, Paul. Take care. Going to Alan in Ottawa. Alan, you're on Beyond the News. Hi. Um, let's talk about the safe injection sites. Okay. 
uh, I think that's a really, really, really bad idea. I uh, attended Drop-In Center, which used to be located right near um, Shepherd's Good Hope. Mm-hmm. And there was drugs happening there all the time, all the time. And now if they plan on moving it back, we're going to deal with the same problem. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you there? Oh, uh, if, they, if they move the, the, the drugs closer, mm-hmm. it's going to be the same problem at the drop-in center. The... Um... The claim is, well, it reduces harm, but yeah, well, it, it's, to... it's still harmful. I mean, we're talking yeah. about heroin, Alan. Oh, I understand that. We had a nut bar in our church the other day who uh, threw a large basket into the pews, and I can see that happening more and more, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, I, um, I think it's a really bad idea, that's all. If I take it you live near Centertown then? Oh, yeah, I do. All right, so you likely see the need for uh, addictions treatment. Oh, we we need to build a whole lot more addiction treatment centers. That's another thing to bring up there. The waiting time is over three or four months now. And if you're on, if you're at rock bottom, yep, with drugs like heroin, you may not last that long. Exactly. So uh, you know, to me, that's the compassionate thing to do. It's the wise thing to do. Um, it's, it's really uh, we're getting few back of their feet. Yeah, it, it it's why I can't recommend places like Harvest House enough, uh, because yeah. they're out there doing it um, with their own budget, without government money, because they know that this needs to be done. They know that there's a need in the city. Yeah, there's a, a really huge need. Uh, can I talk about one other thing, though? Sure, go uh, ahead. Last night, I caught two people vandalizing building directly across from me. I call the cops, and they do nothing about that. They, they were just doing a chalk, but that building across the way has been hit with uh, graffiti at least once a week for, like, the last year. And they've hit our building. They've hit every other building that I know downtown at least once. And, and what, what, did the police just say nothing on the phone? Oh, they, uh, I said, do you know where Les Van Adlory is? And the, the officer said, uh, no, I don't. See, less than that, Lori, is a, it's an iconic building. Well, mm-hmm. two iconic buildings. You know, the corner of Bank and Lori, the two white buildings. Yep, yep. And I think that anybody answering the phone should at least know their way around the city. <laughs> well, you might be asking for too much there. Yeah, well, it's not the first time. Like, I, I uh, called him. There's this drunk guy going down the street threatening to stab people. Yep. He, and... Uh, I called the cops here at Bank and Laurie, mm-hmm. and he was down as far as a bridge, and they didn't send anybody over. Well, that's no, I, that, I that, that's that an odd to... thing, but I, I've exp- had my own odd experiences. Alan, we're going to leave it there. Thanks for the call. All right. And um, just before we, we head out, Donald Trump now coming to the microphone for his big victory speech. Let's listen in for a little bit. Just announced North Carolina. Yeah. I don't know if they've announced Illinois yet, but we're leading by a lot, so I think they're going to announce it. Uh, Florida was so amazing. And I I want to thank our friends. Northern Marianas Islands have been so incredible, and we picked up nine delegates uh, this morning. I heard very early in the morning, nine delegates, that's a lot. And I just wanted to um, thank the governor, 
Ralph Torres, great guy. Chairman Ada, who is a fantastic man. And that was a very nice start to the day, that I can tell you. Uh, many things have been happening over the last short period of time. CNN was very nice. They came up with a poll. The poll said 49% to 14 and 15. Uh, we just had one uh, from The Economist just came out, 53%. And it's sort of interesting because I was watching the news a little while ago, and one of the commentators, who I'm not particularly fond of, but these are minor details, uh, said, but Donald Trump doesn't get over 50% because I'm at 43, 45. Actually, now, according to The Economist, I'm at 53. And I have to explain to these people, they don't understand basic physics, basic mathematics, basic whatever you want to call it. When I don't get over 50, we have four people, right? We have four people. Do you understand that? So when I get 53, and this one is an example, I had 53, and that's with four people. That's an amazing achievement just mathematically when you can get over 50%. So someday, someday they're going to understand. Someday when we, when, we, when we take it all, they'll understand. But it is really ridiculous. I want to thank my family, uh, my boy Eric His speeches are just bizarre. So I don't care if you love them or hate them. Have you heard more bizarre speeches where a politician goes off on rambling rants about some columnist and, you know, but I don't really like him, uh, but that's besides the point, but he doesn't understand math. And he's, he's celebrating his win and attacking someone. It's very New York, I think. Very New York. Donald Trump having his big win tonight. We'll be back here tomorrow, 7 to 10, beyond the news. Make sure that you, you missed part of it tonight. You missed part of it tomorrow night, whatever. Catch it on the podcast. You can always find that on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA.